You're out of the Beatitudes. We're moving into the Old Testament. I'm going to ask you to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Now, you may have a little bit of trouble finding 2 Chronicles, so it's okay to use your table of contents if you need to look that up. We're going to basically be in Nehemiah this morning, but we're going to start in 2 Chronicles as we start a new sermon series this morning. You know, history often repeats itself. History often repeats itself. I've been thinking this past week of all the struggles that our nation is going through right now, all the things that are going on in the life of our country. And yet, these struggles that we go through as a country really aren't that new. If you go back and look at history in the late 1850s, just years before the Civil War in our nation, you will find that our nation was on the brink of turmoil in the late 1850s. In 1857... The United States Supreme Court handed down the Dred Scott case. If you remember, the Dred Scott case said that basically African-American slaves had no, no privileges and rights as a U.S. citizen. In 1857, there was a banking crisis in Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, and Boston that caused a major stock market crash where the banks just collapsed. And it was just years before the Civil War was brewing. It was a time of upheaval, but yet there was a businessman. There was a businessman named Jeremiah Lanfear. He was a businessman in New York that said, you know what, our nation is at the point of turmoil, but what I'm going to do, I'm going to start something, and I don't know where it's going to go, but but what I want to do is I want to start a a noonday prayer time in the city of New York among businessmen. So he started this noontime prayer meeting for, from noon to one o'clock where he invited businessmen in New York to come and, and pray for revival in America. And on the first day, only six people, or actually the first day, nobody showed up. On the second day, six people showed up. A year later, in 1858, there were over 10,000 businessmen in New York meeting every day from noon to one to pray for revival in our nation. This was called, and I don't know if you know the history of our nation, this was called the Great Revival. The Great Revival of 1857-1858. It spread across the nation. It started in the New York City area, but it spread to the Midwest in Chicago. Ever heard of a guy called D.L. Moody? God used D.L. Moody in Chicago during that time to preach great evangelistic messages. And then there was this um, young Virginian girl. She was a girl from Virginia. She was considered the smartest girl in Virginia. She was a student at the University of Virginia. She was an atheist. She didn't believe in Jesus. But this revival swept through, and she felt the call of God upon her life to surrender her life to Christ. She became a Christian, and God called this atheistic woman who became a Christian to become a missionary to China. Her name, Lottie Moon. We celebrate her missions offering in Lottie Moon time, at Christmas time. Historians tell us that never in the history of our nation has there been such widespread revival, such unity among denominations, and such a zeal for overseas missions as there was in 1857 and 1858. It was called the Great Revival. I don't think our nation has seen a time of great revival like it did in those two years that it spread throughout our nation. And guess how it started? With the businessman. Does that make it it interesting to you? It wasn't a preacher. It wasn't a pastor. It wasn't a missionary. It it wasn't some great religious leader. It was a businessman. It was a lay person like you that God moved in his heart and said, I want to birth a revival in this nation. It's going to start with one businessman praying every day from noon to one. 
Now, we have to ask the question, is the United States much different today than it was in 1857? We'd probably say yes. It's a lot different nation. We have a lot more issues that we're dealing with. I mean, we think about the Civil War time, and that was a time when our nation was polarized. I mean, our nation was cut in half. But I can think of no other time in the history of our nation that we are more polarized as a nation. We are more divided as a nation. We are on a nation of a brink. And a lot of you have, have come to me and I, and I read the news and I watch the news and it seems like there's fear and there's angst and there's worry and there's hopelessness everywhere and everybody looks at our nation and says, well, what's going on? And it's like you've been sucker punched and one day you woke up and you're like, this is not the nation that I grew up in. Where are we heading as a country? And then I begin to ask the question, has God abandoned his people? I mean, is there any hope for this nation? And then you have to ask the question, can God bring about a revival like he did in 1857 and 1858? Can God bring about a great revival again in our nation? When a nation is on a a brink of collapse, many people in 1857 felt like our nation was on a brink of collapse. And then just a few years later, the Civil War. But they prayed for revival. Has God abandoned us? Here's a statement that we need to bank our lives upon. I hope you bank your lives upon this statement. It's this. In times of national crisis, the extraordinary God answers the passionate prayers of his ordinary people. In times of national crisis, our extraordinary God answers the passionate prayers of his ordinary people. Do you believe that? Do you believe that we serve an extraordinary God? Do you believe that this extraordinary God answers prayer? You don't have to answer the third one. Do you believe you're an ordinary person? (laughs) Most of us are pretty ordinary. But think about Jeremiah Lanfear, an ordinary businessman. God moved in his heart. One businessman, God moved in his heart. And obviously God was the cause of this great revival back in 1857, 1858. But it started in the heart of one businessman, one layperson. Not a missionary, not a pastor, not a churchman, but a businessman. And so we have to say emphatically, yes, in times of national crisis, our extraordinary God can do extraordinary things through the passionate prayers of his ordinary people. And so we're introduced to Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Over the next two months, we're going to explore the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to see a lot of things jump out at us. A lot of similarities between Nehemiah's world and our world. We're going to learn a lot of good things. And it's going to be a time of refreshing, a time of of understanding what God's will is for us. And so for this morning in the book of Nehemiah, we're going to camp out in chapter 1. And I want us to see four big issues in the book of Nehemiah that set the stage for where we're going over the next few weeks. Four big ticket items that we're going to explore this morning. So this morning, the first thing I want us to explore is the national crisis. What's going on in the nation of Israel? What's the national crisis that's going on? And we have to go back to 2 Chronicles to see that. But let me just give you a real quick flyover of the history of the Old Testament. We've got to lay some groundwork. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God comes in sovereign grace to a man named Abraham, and God calls Abraham to be the father of the Israelite people. And so you have the birth of the nation of Israel with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then you find about 400 years later, 
They're in slavery in Egypt. And you know the story. God raises up Moses to deliver the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. And then they're, they're, they're given the law there at Mount Sinai. They're given God's rules. And then God says, I want you to go into the promised land, this, this land that I've promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. And Moses dies, and so Joshua leads the people into the promised land. And they're in the promised land, and things don't go well. They go well for a while, but then there's, there's judges, and there's these periods of turmoil. And finally, God raises up King David. And King David is the ultimate king of Israel. Uh, you've got the Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and then Israel's at its peak, and then, and then David's son Samuel, or Solomon actually builds the temple. And so in Israel, you've got Jerusalem, the capital city. It's at the height of its glory. You've got the temple. You've got the wall around Jerusalem. And then things go south after King Solomon. You've got a bunch of wicked kings that move the nation of Israel into civil war. You've got the north and the south. They split into two kingdoms. There's problems, there's idolatry, and God sends these prophets, these messengers to come and say to the people, you need to repent because if you don't repent, you're going to get kicked out of the land. You're going to get kicked out of the promised land. And God was patient for many, many years, and eventually that's what happened. The nation of Israel was kicked out of the promised land. They were overtaken by the Babylonians, by King Nebuchadnezzar, for 70 years of exile. And that's where we pick up in Second Chronicles. The nation of Israel... It's been burned to the ground. The temple's been burned. The wall's been burned. The people are taken some 900 miles away, away from their homeland, into exile. And at the end of, of the Second Chronicles, we find these words. So look at Second Chronicles chapter 36, the very last chapter there in Second Chronicles, starting in verse 15. Second Chronicles 36, 15. Here's what the word of the Lord says. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them persistently to them by his messengers, his prophets, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, that's King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword, and the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young men or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, that's the temple, great and small, and the treasures of the house of God, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, they burned the temple, and they broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire." And destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile into Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. God's wrath had come upon the people to where they were taken into Babylonian captivity. But because God is a covenant God, a God of promise, God raises up Cyrus the king. In 539, I don't expect you to remember these dates, but in 539 BC, the Lord moves in Cyrus as the king of Persia's heart and says, I'm going to allow the Jews to return. So the Jews are allowed to return back to Jerusalem. And it's surprising, not many of them go. There's a small wave of them that go under the leadership of Zerubbabel. They rebuild the temple in 515 B.C. And then Ezra takes another group back. They begin to settle in the land. And then we enter the stage where Nehemiah comes. Nehemiah comes some 94 years after that first group 
went back to Jerusalem. So Nehemiah takes place 94 years after that first group of, of Israelites went back to resettle in Israel. And Israel's not in its glory days. I mean, they've rebuilt the temple, but the wall is still not rebuilt. The city can be lay open to siege. Why in the world has it taken 94 years to rebuild the wall? That's a huge question. Why has it taken 94 years to do this? Israel is not in its glory days like it was in the past. It's been under punishment. It's been under, under siege. They're back in the land. They're still a minority in the world. They're apathetic. They're lacking leadership. There's no vision. There's, there, there's nothing going on in the nation. Does this not sound like America today? Many people may think, well, the glory days of our nation are past. We have a lack of leadership. We're in times of turmoil, and we wonder, has God abandoned us as a nation? And so the context of Nehemiah is very similar to ours. Because you see, as a church, we live in a nation where there's times of uncertainty. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you really wonder about the future? Okay, some of you are raising your hand. <laughs> That's okay. There's a little fear. There's a little worry. And sometimes as Christians, we don't know how to cope with it. How, how do we deal with the world that we've been given, the nation that we find ourselves in? So what I want us to do is I want us to go to Nehemiah. That sets the stage. That's the national crisis. They've been 70 years in exile. They've been sent back. They've had all this turmoil. There's lack of leadership. And then on the stage of history steps this man, Nehemiah. So let's turn to the book of Nehemiah. Just skip past Ezra. Actually, in the original Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah were one big book, but we've divided it in two in our English Bibles. So let's look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. So the first thing we've seen this morning is the national crisis. But the second thing I want us to see is let's see this ordinary man, this ordinary man, Nehemiah. Nehemiah 1.1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it appeared in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. What we find out, secondly, here is about this ordinary man named Nehemiah. Now, these are the memoirs of Nehemiah because he writes in the first person. He, he writes in the first person of what God has accomplished through him. And the word Nehemiah means the Lord comforts. Now, here's the extraordinary thing about Nehemiah. And you need to catch this. Nehemiah is an ordinary dude. Okay, number one, he's not a king. He's not in the line of David. He's not a king. He, he doesn't have any kingly authority. Number two, he's not a prophet. He's not a preacher. He hasn't been commissioned by God to be a prophet. And number three, he's not a priest. He's not, he's not even allowed to go in and do sacrifices in the temple. He's not a prophet. He's not a priest. He's not a king. These three offices in the nation of Israel were reserved for the, the elite of the leadership. He is not any of those. He's a cupbearer. He is an ordinary guy. He's a cupbearer. He's not a pastor. He's not a missionary. He's just an ordinary dude or, or dudette like some of you. He's an ordinary person. Just an ordinary guy. But he's a cupbearer. What's a cupbearer? Well, in those days, people would try to get to the king. 
So King Artaxerxes is the king, and they would try to maybe poison him. They would maybe try to to sneak in and assassinate him. So the cupbearer was really the king's right-hand man. He would taste the wine before the king would to make sure it wasn't poisoned. He had to be trusted. He had to be not an assassin, not a spy. He had to be a a loyal subject to the king. And so this this is where Nehemiah finds himself. He's just an ordinary guy who happens to be in a strategic place, but he's not a prophet. He's not a priest. He's not a king. He is an ordinary guy. And so what we find out from Nehemiah is that he is an ordinary guy but he has some extraordinary things about him he has a holy ambition to rebuild this wall and he is a man that's saturated in the scriptures he is a man that loves to pray and he is a man that's an effective leader and so God uses him in a very special way and so what we've got to ask here is can an extraordinary God use ordinary people to do extraordinary things yes He used Nehemiah. So let me just make this real personal to you. Can God use you as an ordinary person to do extraordinary things for his glory? And I hope your answer is yes. Don't ever shortchange yourself because I'm not a pastor, I'm not a missionary, I'm not such and such, I'm just an ordinary person. God often uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. We've just got to be in a position for God to use us. It starts with a life that's passionately pursuing Jesus, a life that's saturated in the scriptures, a life that loves to pray, a life that sees the hand of God working. And so we're introduced to Nehemiah. So first of all, the national crisis. Secondly, this ordinary man, Nehemiah, an ordinary guy, just like you and me, whom God uses for his glory. But let's look at number three, the overwhelming dilemma. What's the problem here? I mean, what's the problem? His brother Hanani comes back to him and says, things aren't going well in Jerusalem. I mean, Nehemiah, it's been 94 years since that first wave of, of Israelites came back, and it's to their great shame and great trouble. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are destroyed by fire. The wall's broken down. The wall has not been rebuilt. And it's a shame, he says, it's a shame to these people. Why has it taken over 90 years to rebuild this wall? Why such apathy? Why such laziness? Why isn't there the drive to do this? Why is there such lack of leadership? Why leave the city undefended for 90 years? Now, at first glance, the problem in Nehemiah is that the wall needs to be rebuilt. But there's something deeper going on in Nehemiah besides a wall being rebuilt. Because in chapter 6, the wall gets rebuilt. And if you count the chapters in Nehemiah, it goes up to chapter 13. So chapters 1 through 7 deal with the rebuilding of the wall. Chapters 8 through 13 deal with with the rebuilding of the people. They're not just a people that have a broken down wall. They are a people that have a broken down life. They themselves are in shambles it's god's design to rebuild the people the people are complacent the people are lazy the people aren't where god wants them to be and god will stop at nothing less as we will see in nehemiah god wants to bring revival and spiritual awakening to this apathetic people He wants to rebuild the people as much as he wants to rebuild the wall. And so, yes, this is a physical building project, but more importantly, it's a spiritual building project where God is going to bring revival and renewal to the hearts of the people so they can be what God has called them to be. And so we need to ask the question in our day, do we need a revival in our time? 
I hope you say yes. We don't need more gimmicks. We don't need more slick marketing. We don't need more entertainment. We don't need more machinery. We don't need all of this stuff. What do we need? We need the power of God. You would think with all the machinery, with all the stuff that we're cranking out, that God's sitting up in heaven and he's impressed with all the things that we can produce in our own power. You think by what we crank out as Christians, God's impressed. We don't need more of us. We need more of him. We need the power of Almighty God to do what only God can do. But yet, all the time that we look around, we're trying to crank out things that we can do in our own power. I had to listen to some sermons from my doctoral seminar a few weeks ago. One of them was from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And we could choose whatever sermon we want to listen to. And so I listened to his sermon on revival. It was preached at the 100th anniversary of the revival that I had talked about earlier, because that revival in America spread to Wales, and it spread to to England. And listen to what he said back in, in 1959. He said, You must realize that we are confronted with something that's far too deep for our methods to get rid of or to deal with. You and I need something that can go down beneath the evil power and shatter it, and there's only one thing that can do that, and that's the power of God. We must become utterly and absolutely convinced of our need. We must cease to have so much confidence in ourselves and in all of our methods and organizations and in all of our slickness. We need a power that can enter into the souls of men and break them and smash them and humble them and make them anew, and that's the power of the living God. Do you see the spiritual apathy that our nation is in? And do you realize that only the power of God is going to go in and shatter that? We need God to come in and do a work. We can't be content with business as usual in our own hearts, in our own church, in our nation. We've got to be pleading for God to do what only God can do. To come in revival and spiritual awakening and get beneath all of the junk and break us anew as the powerful God that he is. So we've seen the national crisis. They're back in the land. They've had 70 years of turmoil, of of Babylonian captivity. We've seen the ordinary man, Nehemiah, just an ordinary guy. Just like Jeremiah Lanfear was an ordinary guy that God used to to begin a revival. We've seen the dilemma. The wall is is not rebuilt. The wall is, is laying desolate. It's taken 90 years for them to get around to it. But what I want us to see fourthly here is the passionate prayer of this man. Let's continue reading. Let's look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you disperse be under though though you disperse be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people 
whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. What we will find out about Nehemiah is that he is a man of prayer. There are nine recorded prayers in the book of Nehemiah. This man is always praying. It's the first thing he does. What's the first thing he does when he finds out the national crisis and the dilemma? He doesn't form a committee. He doesn't go on a marketing campaign. He doesn't go door to door. He doesn't fret. He doesn't do all the things that we would probably do. He gets on his knees and begins to pray. And what kind of praying do you see from this man? It says he wept, he mourned, he fasted. This situation moved this man to tears. He mourned the situation. He passionately prayed. He was moved to the very core of his being that if God doesn't move, we are sunk. I'm going to get on my knees. I'm going to passionately seek the face of the living God. I'm going to fast. I'm going to pray. I am mourning over the state of my nation. Does does that characterize us? Do we mourn over the state of our nation? Do we mourn over the state of the church? Do we long for revival? Or do we just give it lip service and say, yeah, revival would be nice? Or do we seriously say, if revival is going to happen, I know it's going to come from a sovereign God, but one of the ways he uses it is the prayers of his people. Am I going to get on my knees? Am I going to seek the face of this God? Am I going to passionately be moved by the state of affairs? One of the powerful themes of this entire book is the absolute sovereignty of God that God is going to move. God's going to do extraordinary things through ordinary people, and and prayer is one of the primary ways that God does that. So let's look more specifically at this prayer. It really has four parts, four parts to this prayer. And before we even get into the prayer, one thing that you need to notice about Nehemiah is that he's a Scripture-saturated man. This entire prayer is taken from both Exodus and Deuteronomy. So the entire prayer is saturated in the Scriptures. It's not just something he made up in his own mind. He's praying the Bible back to God. You can't go wrong when you pray the Bible back to God. So let's look at the four parts of his prayer. This is really a model for how we should pray. What's the first thing that he starts with? The first thing that he starts with in this prayer is this. He sees adoration. We see the adoration to this extraordinary God. Notice how it starts in verse 5. I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. He begins where all prayer should begin with an overwhelming acknowledgement and adoration of this great, powerful, majestic, holy, almighty God. Notice what he says. O Lord God of heaven. Now, he's not just telling God where he is. God, you're in heaven because God didn't know he was there. That's not what Nehemiah is doing. When we say God in heaven, it's not spatially where God is. That's true. What we're talking about is God's character. God being in heaven means he's exalted on his throne. He's master. He's high and lifted up. He is exalted. He's the king of heaven. He's the Lord of lords. He's the king of kings. He is the almighty God. And so Nehemiah gets on his knees and says, God, you're sovereign. God, you're awesome. God, you're powerful. And notice what else. Uh, He's absolutely holy. Jesus tells us to pray this way. In Matthew 6, 9 through 10, Jesus tells us how to pray. He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught us to start that way. Start your prayers by focusing on God in heaven. But notice what Nehemiah says about this God in heaven. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. I think some of the old translations say the terrible God. 
the awe-inspiring, powerful God, the God that's gripped us, the God that is so high and lifted up and exalted and holy that we are moved to fear and adore and reverence this amazing God, the great, the awesome, the mighty, the God in heaven who's absolutely inspiring. He's awe-inspiring. He's sovereign. But notice what else. Oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. The steadfast love. Those of you that have been around here for the past six or seven years, you know what that Old Testament word is. It's the word hesed. The steadfast love of the Lord. It's that tenacious, loyal, powerful, gripping love where God says, I'm going to hold on to you even if you don't hold on to me because I'm a faithful God and I've made a covenant promise to you. It's the powerful, gripping, sovereign love of God where God says, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. So Nehemiah says, this is the God that I've got to pray to. The sovereign God, the holy God, the powerful God, the loving God, the God that's never going to let me go. God has sworn an oath to his people and I'm praying to this covenant keeper. God. Deuteronomy 7 9 is where he gets this from. Deuteronomy 7 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So the first thing in this prayer is this adoration of this absolutely holy, powerful, sovereign, loving God. But notice the second thing in this prayer the confession of sin. We see that in verses 6 and 7. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. For the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. He says, we've sinned. And notice how Nehemiah doesn't stand outside the people. Nehemiah could have very easily said, Lord, your people have sinned. Look at what they've done. But Nehemiah steps right in there and says, I am one of those people and I have sinned. I'm not above these people. I have sinned. I am my father's house of sin. We have acted grievously. We have sinned against this almighty God. Now, 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 now that's very key when we think about revival. Oftentimes, when we pray for God to do revival, what do we do? We point our finger out there and say, God, you better deal with those people if you're going to bring revival. What we should be doing is pointing the finger back at us and say, God, you must deal with me if you're going to bring revival. Where does revival start? It doesn't start with those people out there. It ever starts in our own hearts. It starts with us coming clean and saying, I've got to confess the sins that have, that have separated me from this holy God. I'm going to be confessing my sins. And how specifically had they sinned against God? Look at verse 7. We have acted very corruptly against you. We've not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. We've acted very corruptly. That word in the original language, corruptly, means dirty vile, corrosive. It's this word picture that Nehemiah is saying is that, God, our acts of sin are so offensive to you, they stink, they're corrosive, they're moldy, they're gross. We have sinned against you. And it's very easy to look at the immorality and the depravity of our nation and be very judgmental and very holier than thou. If those people out there just got their acts together, then God could bring revival. If those people out there would just, would just do something and repent, then God would bring revival. If those people out there would just stop being sinners, God could come and bring revival. If those people out there, God's not going to bring revival if that's our attitude, those people out there. Where does revival start? It starts with the heart in here. God, you've got to do a work in here. God, you've got to take me right here. God, you've got to to come and work in my own life. How have we offended 
God? Are we moved to tears that we have offended God? Psalm 51, 3 through 4. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. How dare we ask God to do extraordinary things when we cherish sin in our own hearts? How dare we ask God? God, bring revival when we're not willing to look at our own hearts and ask him to, to, to forgive us. So the first part of Nehemiah's prayer is, I'm praying to this awesome, holy, powerful, loving God. Number two, I'm confessing not only my own personal sins, but the sins of this nation. But here's the third thing. It's a plea of remembrance. Look at verses 8 through 10. Nehemiah says, remember, God, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're faith unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're dispersed be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. He's using Deuteronomy chapter 30, 1 through 4, as a way to remind God. He says, God, remember. God, you made a covenant with these people. God, you said to these people, if they disobeyed, they would be kicked out of the land. And that's exactly what happened, God. We disobeyed. We were kicked out of the land for 70 years. But in your faithfulness, the Bible says you'd bring us back. And so, God, you've brought us back. You're a faithful God. We are here. You've brought us back. Now, remember that covenant. Remember what you've done, God. Remember your promise to us. And it would have been very easy for these people to come back to Israel and just kind of coast not thank God for his work, not repent, just go on in life as as normal and not give God the proper credit for bringing them back. And so Nehemiah knows his history and Nehemiah knows that the reason they first were in exile was because of their sin and he doesn't want it to happen again. He knows his history. He knows God will never leave them and forsake them. So he says, God, remember your covenant. And then in verse 10, God, Remember your redemption. They are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. He's talking about the exodus here. God, remember what you did in Exodus, how you took the people who were in Israelite bondage and by your strong and powerful hand, you redeemed them out of Egyptian bondage and you brought them to the promised land. We are saved, God. You used a sacrificial lamb at Passover with blood to redeem us from slavery. You can do that again. And so we need to understand something here, that we're in this stream of history. There may have been Passover in the Old Testament where God redeemed them out of slavery with the blood of the lamb, but if you're a Christian, you've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb Jesus, and you've been brought out of slavery, and you are one of God's children, and God has saved you. Deuteronomy 9.29, For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, 18-19, knowing that you were ransomed from this feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, or silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We've been bought with the blood of Christ. And so Nehemiah starts this prayer. God, you're holy. God, you're awesome. You're the great and awesome God. You're the powerful God. You're the loving God. And then I confess my sin. I am a sinner. We've acted corruptly. We've acted corrosively. We, we have sinned against you. But, but thirdly, God, remember. Remember, God, you made a covenant. God, you made a promise. And God, we know that you're a loving, faithful God. You've saved us. Remember the covenant you made with your people. And then the fourth part of his prayer is really a request for success. It's the actual prayer request. And notice that Nehemiah doesn't start with his prayer request first. He could have gone into God and said, God, here's what I want you to do. No, he starts with worship, then moves to confession, and then moves for remembrance, and then he gets to the specific prayer request. 
Oftentimes we go in and try to give God our laundry list and we don't worship him, we don't confess sin, we just kind of go in on our agenda. But notice what he does. He says there in verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success, here's the prayer, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He knows that in order to rebuild the wall, he's going to have to get permission from the king, King Artaxerxes. He's going to have to get permission. He's going to have to get resources. And it may be a little scary to approach this king. And so he says, Lord, grant me success as I approach this man. Now, did you find that interesting? He doesn't call him the king. He says, give me success as I approach this man. This man just so happens to be the most powerful man in all the nation. But in Nehemiah's mind, he knows that he's just a king. Ultimately, I serve a greater king who's on his throne, and my greater king is going to do what he will to move in the heart of this king. And so I'm praying to God to move in the heart of this man to give me favor. And it's a little scary. It could have been a little scary for for Nehemiah because if you go back to Ezra chapter 4, this same king was the one that put a halt to the rebuilding of, of Jerusalem. And he could have very easily said, Nehemiah, I don't even want to listen to you. Nehemiah, I'm not going to grant your request. Nehemiah, get out of my presence. So there's a little bit of fear and trepidation because Nehemiah knew that he had to go in and he had to ask the king for specifics. And we'll look at that next week, how he goes in and asks for specifics. But listen to the phrase of that last sentence. It's kind of put there, kind of weird, right? Now, I was cupbearer to the king. Don't you think it should have started with that? Like way back up in chapter 1, I was cupbearer to the king, but it's the last thing he puts there. What does that mean? I think... Nehemiah puts it there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because he's saying, God has placed me in a strategic position of influence at this time. I wasn't just any old person. I was the cupbearer to the king. I had an audience with the king. And so God had strategically placed him. Now, this could have been terrifying and encouraging. Terrifying because I've got to go talk to the king. I'm in this leadership position. I'm in this position of influence. This could be terrifying. But also encouraging because if I'm here in this position, it's because God has put me in this position. God has ordained that I'm in this strategic position. And so I want you to think about yourselves for a moment this morning. Don't underestimate where God has placed you. You have a very strategic position that God has placed you in. And you may think, well, I don't don't think I'm anybody. Yes, you are. God has placed you in a strategic position. And it's different for all of you out there, but God has placed you where you are to make an influence, to be a leader to have influence, to to speak truth into people's life, to be salt and light. So don't underestimate the power of God to place you where you are. You may think, well, I'm I'm in no place this morning. Sean, if you knew where I was, you'd think I'm no big person. And I'd say, you know what? God is in charge of where he places you. Don't compare yourselves to other people. Don't try to aspire to something that God hasn't planned. Look at where God has planted you. It's strategic. Open your eyes. Ask God to open your eyes to where he's placed you and look at how you can have influence. And notice what Nehemiah says. God, give me success. Give me success. Now, is there anything wrong with asking God to give you success? There's nothing wrong with that. Now, here's a big question for you. What are you asking God to do that only God can do so that when God does it, he gets all the glory? Is there something in your life right now that you're asking God, God, grant me success? Now, I'm not talking about selfish. God, grant me success. Give me a Lamborghini and all these women on my arms and make me a millionaire. That's not what I'm saying. 
God's definition of success. Not selfish, not infantile, not a childish prayer, but a mature prayer that says, God, if this is going to bring you glory and you've strategically placed me in this place, Lord, grant me success. Lord, let your will be done. Grant me success. Now, let me remind you again. Nehemiah is not a king. He's not a prophet. He's not a priest. He's not a missionary. He's not a pastor. We don't even know if he's a Sunday school teacher. We don't know if he's a deacon or an elder. All we know is he's a cupbearer. He's an ordinary guy just like you. But he was a man of prayer. And he was saturated in the scriptures. And he wanted to serve the living God. I want you to notice something. It should have jumped out at you as we read this. How many times does the word servant show up in this passage? Well, look at verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. Verse 7, your servant, Moses. Verse 8, your servant, Moses. Verse 10, your servants and your people. Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. Servant, servant, servant. Nehemiah was a servant. Moses was a servant. The Israelites were a servant. This whole servant language. What did Nehemiah want more than anything? I just want to be a servant of the living God. I want to humbly, obediently serve my master. I'm a servant. Can that be described of your life? If somebody were to describe your life, would they say, yeah, that person's a servant? When you describe your life, do you say, I'm, a, I'm just a servant. I'm a servant of the living God. I'm a servant. Now, what does servant imply? It doesn't imply you're the master, does it? When you say I'm a servant, that means that God is in charge and it's God's agenda and God's ways and you're just lining up under God's plan and you say, my joy in life is to humbly and obediently and willingly serve my king. I want to be a servant. I want to serve wherever God leads me. I want to be a servant. Are we serving the living God? That was Nehemiah's thing. I want to be a servant. Lord, grant your servant Your servants, Moses was a servant, I want to be like Moses. Israelites, they were servants, I want to be like the Israelites. I'm your servant now, grant your servant success, I am your servant. Now, if there's one verse that American Christians need to hear about being servants, American Christians, it's 1 Peter 2.16. Here's what it says. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Land of the free, home of the brave. We are a free people. But Jesus says here through Peter, don't live in a way that makes your freedom an excuse to go indulge in sin. Use your freedom as a way to be a servant of the living God. Are we servants? Can we say like Nehemiah, I'm a servant to the living God. I'm bowing before this God. My passionate prayer is to come before this holy God and say, God, you're righteous. God, you're powerful. God, you're holy. I confess my sin. Remember your covenant. Grant me success. I am a servant. Now, here's the crazy thing about it. God has called us to be servants in crazy times. He's called us to be a servant right now in this world where we live. So we've got to ask the question again. In times of national crisis, does the extraordinary God answer the ordinary prayers of his ordinary people to do extraordinary things? 
And as we'll find out with Nehemiah, yes, he does. So my encouragement for you today is glory in your ordinariness. I don't know if that's a word. Because you serve an extraordinary God. And this extraordinary God wants to advance his agenda and he's calling all of us to be servants to that agenda, just like he called Nehemiah to be a servant. But where did it start? It started with prayer. It started with getting on his knees, mourning, weeping, not just for a few minutes, but notice what it says there back in verse 4. I mourned for days. Now, we don't know how many days it was, but this wasn't just a little prayer meeting. Let's meet for a half an hour and pray for revival. This was a passionate, longing desire for God to move, and it moved him to tears, it moved him to his knees, it moved him to fast. Nehemiah is about God rebuilding the wall. But more importantly, it's about God rebuilding the people of God spiritually. Do we need to be rebuilt as a people? I would say yes. Are you ready to go on this journey in Nehemiah to see God do a physical rebuilding of the wall, but more importantly, a spiritual rebuilding on the people that comes through a national revival? That's what happens in Nehemiah. Are you ready for God to do a spiritual rebuilding in your lives? Are you ready for God to do a spiritual rebuilding in our church? Are you ready for God to do a spiritual rebuilding in our nation? Are you ready for God to do the rebuilding? Because you can't do it. Only God can do it. He's the master potter. He's the builder. He's going to come in his grace and his power and he's going to rebuild us and refashion us and remold us. What's our posture when God does that? I'm just a servant. God, you're the master. I'm a servant. I'm willing, I'm ready, and I'm able to do whatever you call me to do. Because I'm most concerned about your glory and I'm most concerned about the spiritual rebuilding and Lord, I'm your servant. So as we go through the book of Nehemiah, we'll see a national revival. We'll see opposition to the wall. We'll see internal conflict that comes against the people of God. We'll see all types of things that, that are very pertinent to where we are today. And I want you to keep thinking in your mind, we are ordinary people. That's not hard to think about. We're ordinary people, but we serve an extraordinary God who can do extraordinary things through our prayers if we simply say, God, I am your servant. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as we go and as we pray to this extraordinary God. And what I want to do this, this morning is I want to lead us through a prayer. You're not going to be praying this out loud, but I want to lead us through the prayer that Nehemiah prayed. And I want you to pray it in your own words, in your heart to God. So the first thing I want us to do is spend some time in adoration this morning. That's where Nehemiah started. Oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, the God of steadfast love. So spend just a few moments this morning praising and adoring this great God for being your wonderful, powerful Savior. So spend some time in prayer just for a few moments here, praising and adoring and worshiping the great God. Best sin. He says, we've acted corruptly. We've sinned. Spend some time this morning confessing any particular sin that you may have brought into this place this morning with the hope that the blood of Christ covers it, but spend some time confessing sin in just these few moments.
that Nehemiah did was he said, remember, Lord, remember your covenant, remember your faithfulness. Spend some time just saying, Lord, remember your grace, remember your covenant. It's, it's okay to tell God to remember. The Bible tells us to remember. It's not as if God forgot, but it's our way of just, of just appealing to our God for him to remember his covenant faithfulness. Tell God the promises that he's given in Scripture that he's promised never to leave you or forsake you. So spend some time just saying, God, remember, remember me, remember your covenant, remember your faithfulness. Nehemiah asked for success. Lord, grant your servant success. And so there may be some prayer request that's looming in your life that you need God's intervention, you need God's answer, you need success, and not in the success of, uh, of worldly or selfish, but in God's ordained success. So it's appropriate to pray to God and just spend some time asking for those specific things right now. Whatever God will lay upon your heart to ask for specifically, ask for it right now. Father, thank you that you are a God that's great and awesome, mighty in power, You're the Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps steadfast love and covenant faithfulness to a thousand generations. And Father, we come before you as our great God and we confess our need for you. We confess our sins to you. We ask, Lord, that you would remember your covenant with us. And Lord, we do ask, like you did in the days of Nehemiah, like you did in our nation back in 1857 and 1858, would you pour out your spirit in spiritual awakening and revival in our land? And Lord, let it start in our own hearts. Lord, give us a mindset to be a servant, that we serve the living God. We're not in charge. We're not in control. We just serve gladly and joyfully and humbly, obediently. And Lord, may we be moved to tears. May we be moved to fasting for our lives, for our nation, for our church, for, for, for whatever, Lord, you're calling us to do, that you would pour out your spirit and power upon us as your people. And Lord, we'll be ready for the spiritual rebuilding that you may be doing in our lives. Father, you want to do a building project, a rebuilding project. And that means that as the master parter, you need to get deep down into our souls and start to do some things. May we be open to the work of the master potter's hands in this rebuilding project, the spiritual renewal that you're calling us to. And Lord, may we realize that Nehemiah is not the hero of the story, but Jesus, you are. God, you are the hero of the story. Nehemiah was an ordinary man, just like we are, but he served an ordinary, extraordinary God like we do. Thank you that you are an extraordinary God. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.